When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Deadliest day, Israeli airstrikes killed 43 in Gaza with no end in sight to the conflict. Streaming spin-off, Warner Media combines with Discovery to take on Netflix and Disney. And Bitcoin bashed, Elon Musk creates a crypto crunch with just one word. Indeed, it's Monday. Let's make a move. show once again and we begin with the increasingly violent conflict between Israel and Gaza now in its second week. This was a scene in Gaza earlier Monday. Israel says its airstrikes destroyed several homes that it claims belong to Hamas commanders. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the airstrikes will continue for, quote, some time. Palestinian health officials say Sunday was the deadliest day yet, with more than 50 people killed. They say the death toll in Gaza has reached 200 in the past week, including 59 children. Israel says 10 people have been killed as a result of Hamas rocket fire. Hadas Gold is in Ashdod on Israel's Mediterranean coast. Hadas, there were hopes building over the weekend that perhaps we could see some mediation and perhaps a calming of this conflict. No sign of that this moment, certainly. I can tell you that here in Ashdown, about 15 and a half miles north of the Gaza Strip, it has not been quiet today. As we speak, actually, I just heard another plane flying overhead. We've been hearing them buzz above us all day long. We already had one red alert siren here earlier today. A barrage of rockets were fired towards this city, towards Ashkelon, also towards Beersheba, uh, further to the east of us. Uh, it does not seem as though things are calming down at all. The Israeli military has been very active in the last 24 hours, uh, hitting what it says are more than 110 targets overnight, including what it calls the uh, Hamas metro system, essentially. These are a series of tunnels that they say run underneath uh, the Gaza Strip. They say this is where Hamas stores things, where they hide. This is how they get around the Strip. They've also said that they've targeted a, a sort of submarine vessel that they found, that they discovered off the coast. They also say that they have killed a top commander of the Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad in charge of the Northern Brigades. So it goes to show you, this is just all in the past few hours, how much activity is 
going on here. We continue to hear these airplanes. We continue to hear the explosions behind us in Gaza. And we continue to experience rockets being fired from Gaza into Israel. The Israeli military is saying now more than 3,200 rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel. The death and the destruction in Gaza uh, is also rising. According to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, there were 197 dead, including 58 children so far. Now, the Israeli military disputes these numbers because they, because they say Hamas runs the Ministry of Health there. The Israeli military says that they have killed at least 130 combatants, and we don't know how those numbers comport with one another. In Israel, uh, Israeli officials say 10 people have been killed, including one child and a soldier. Now, we do know that there are efforts underway at the diplomatic level. There are conversations going on between U.S. officials and officials here. We know that the U.S. State Department's top Mideast envoy is here currently meeting with officials from all sides. We also know that the Egyptians are currently at work, and the Egyptians were key in 2014 for the cessation of hostilities then. Uh, but as you noted, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying in a speech yesterday to, Isra to Israelis that this operation will go on until they feel they have met their military objectives and hit the targets they want to hit. And I can tell you, again, from just the activity we're hearing here in Ashdod, we do not seem to be heading towards any sort of calm quite yet, and that this operation could continue and this violence could continue for some time. And we pray for an end to it. Had us gold in Ashdod. Stay safe, Chris. Thank you so much. Stay tuned to CNN for the very latest on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And for now, we'll move on. There's a bonanza of business news to cover this Monday, too, including a heavyweight hookup between AT&T's WarnerMedia unit, the parent company of CNN, of course, and Discovery Communications. It's a battle for streaming supremacy over Disney and Netflix. We've got all the details on that just ahead, too. But first, it's a mindful Monday, I think, from investors. The majors set to add to last week's losses. You can see the red there on the board. Amid ongoing inflationary concerns and uneven recoveries, China today reporting an almost 18% rise in retail sales in April. It's a monster number, but expectations, in fact, were for a 25% rise. So it's just the latest data point to catch economists off guard. The Shanghai Composite rising, though, on hopes that Beijing will now perhaps rethink efforts to lessen economic support. Also, as you can see there, a week session in Taiwan as the government there closes schools to fight its largest COVID outbreak so far. We will head there later in the show for the latest. Hong Kong and Singapore are also delaying the launch of their travel bubble as Singapore cases rise too. And Australia vowing to keep its border closed to most international travel until this time next year. Yes, you heard that right. 2022. France, Germany, Italy and Spain heading in the opposite direction, easing lockdowns. And UK scientists urging a more cautious approach to reopenings due to the spread of the COVID variant first identified in India. Much more on Europe's reopenings and what's going on in India too later on in the show. But first, breaking news on the Game of Thrones battle for streaming superiority. AT&T announcing it will spin off its massive Warner Media unit and merge it with Discovery, the owner of the popular streaming service Discovery Plus. The two companies joining forces to better compete with streaming giants Netflix, NBC Universal and Disney Plus. The deal comes less than three years after AT&T bought the Warner Media Empire, including HBO, Warner Brothers Studio, CNN and other assets. Brian Stelter joins me now to go through all the details on this. And it is a streaming spin-off. It means a scale 
means everything, I think, is the message in this deal, too. Game of Thrones meets trash TV, reality TV, and a, a lot in between. <laughs> Talk us through this deal. That's because viewers want everything. They want all of the above. They and so and that do. is the business logic here. <laughs> That's the pitch from David Zaslav, the Discovery CEO, who will be taking over this combined company. Uh, about a year from now is when the companies expect this to win regulatory approval and actually take effect. Nothing very quickly in this media world as Netflix and Disney keep, uh, you know, continuing with their streaming pushes. Discovery and Warner Media together believe they can better compete with Discovery and uh, with Netflix and Disney. So that's the rationale here, but it's also about cable scale, linear cable scale, because this brings together these channels, the CNN family of channels, with a Animal Planet and TLC and the rest. So you've got Discovery and Warner trying to fight the current battles in cable and the future battles in streaming at the same time. So we talk about this deal in terms of content as well. David uh, Saslav, of course, going to run this combined venture. He's saying, look, we're going to spend $20 billion a year in terms of content. That's already what Warner Media and what Discovery is spending. But if you compare that to Netflix kind of content spending around $17 billion, you get a sense of what they're achieving here if we hone in on the, the streaming ambitions for what's yeah, being Yeah, this is really... Here the land of the streaming giants. And now that Discovery and Warner Media have paired up, it puts even more pressure on NBC, on right. Comcast, and on Viacom CBS. We may see even more media consolidation as a result of this current wave. The, the logic uh, fr from Wall Street is pretty clear. You have to be a giant in order to have enough money, to have enough capital, to make enough programming to keep everybody subscribed and signed up. And not just in the U.S., but critically all around the world. In speaking with the executives this morning, Julia, the message is clear. This is a global deal. HBO Max is about to launch internationally. Discovery has a big footprint all around the world. Zaslav wants to use that footprint to supercharge what Warner is doing. Uh, so he says these brands, these companies fit like a glove. And so far, this is getting a lot of support from the Wall Street community, from analysts. They've been predicting that AT&T would do something with us, with CNN, with Warner Media, And now we know what that something actually is. And what about for, for AT&T here? I mean, they've shed billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of, of assets here, Brian. There's a lot of people that will be looking at this going, this is mind blowing. I mean, the landscape has materially changed in four years, but has it changed this month much? And what does it mean for AT&T going forward, whether they can now focus on 5G uh, capabilities, whether they can pay down some debt, which is important too. But whoa, some big decisions here and some big reversals too. A lot of people will see this as a defeat for AT&T, an acknowledgement that bringing together media and entertainment along with right. wireless and broadband is not the magic formula. We've just seen in the past couple months Verizon make a similar move by selling off AOL and Yahoo. Now here's AT&T spinning off Warner Media, spinning off HBO into its own company. The spin from Dallas, however, AT&T headquarters, is that they're going to remain invested in this new company, so shareholders win, and they're going to have tens of billions of dollars that they can use to pay down AT&T's huge debt burden. It's about getting that debt burden down and focusing on broadband. But I do think, you know, when the history books are written, people will look back and say, maybe these are just not meant to be together. Maybe the logic was not there five years ago. So we're seeing this great unwinding now happening. The history books will say, ouch. Brian Stelter, thank you so much thank for you. that. All right, another Bitcoin blunder. Tesla CEO Elon Musk tweeting, indeed, in response to a suggestion Tesla could sell its Bitcoin holding. That one word sent Bitcoin and other major cryptocurrencies plunging. Musk later clarified Tesla has not sold Bitcoin. Paula Monica is with us. I mean, Paul, 
pass the popcorn, quite frankly, over the weekend. You know, it's okay when you're one of the world's richest men to effectively play games, I think, in the crypto space. For a lot of people that are investing, a lot of retail investors that have been pulled into the digital asset space, and as Bitcoin investors in particular, I kind of feel sorry for them. Yeah, I agree with you, Julia. It is certainly alarming that one individual has so much sway that, as you point out, a cryptic one-word tweet sends the value of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies plunging because you know people start interpreting what did he really mean? Is Tesla getting out of Bitcoin already? And then he had to clarify and say, no, we haven't sold any of our holdings. I think that at best, what Elon Musk is doing on social media is reckless. And, and at worst, it's just downright irresponsible and um, you know really shady, to, to put it mildly. I think that investors have to be worried that Elon Musk is so powerful. And it brings up a point that I got a research report this morning that raised an interesting uh, concern, which is that everyone, including Elon Musk, wants cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin to be a viable form of payment and not just digital gold, you can't have that when the value fluctuates 20% in any given week just because one individual is tweeting something. You can't pay for something if that value of that currency is going to go down. That's why people still use dollars, euro and yen. This is a great point. And that is a point that I alluded to on Friday, which is you have to separate the idea that this is a store of wealth and that means holding it on the balance sheet. And Elon Musk is arguably saying that he's still doing that versus using it as a mode of exchange. I mean, he did say and in this statement that we got on Friday, we're still looking at other cryptocurrencies that use less than 1% of Bitcoin's energy and transaction. And I think that's what this comes down to. It's what on earth happened here? Did Elon Musk misunderstand the energy intensity, the relative energy intensity of Bitcoin? Or was this all a, a big game, particularly when he's talking about using Dogecoins or people paying with Dogecoins to, uh, to go to the moon. Um, Christian Romans called him a walking SEC violation on Friday. I just think if you're an institutional investor, and this is the critical point, who've all been getting involved in this and saying, look, there are huge opportunities in the crypto space. You probably took a few phone calls from clients over the weekend going, you know, what are you thinking? What are you doing to us? Yeah. Yeah, I think you have to figure that there are plenty of individuals trying to get in touch with Elon saying, uh, could you put the phone down, maybe not tweet as much? Because <laughs> Christine nailed it. That is the perfect way to describe Elon Musk right now. You got to figure that, you know, people in Washington at the SEC must be licking their chops yet again to try and potentially uh, go after him for uh, some of these comments. And, and I, even if we're going to let's take it at face value and say that Musk isn't doing anything that is from malintent, if it's still just a function of he's too impulsive on Twitter, put the freaking phone down, Elon, just stop. I mean, this is very similar to what we had with the past president, obviously. You can't be tweeting reckless things. It's going to get you in trouble. And it yeah, already and, has. And Bitcoin people involved in the... People involved in the industry want greater regulation. They want this to be seen as a, a viable asset class. Um, this is the fastest way of bringing the kind of regulation that you don't want and over-regulation, I think, when people are getting whipsawed around. I did see someone suggest that maybe Elon Musk was uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, of course, the sort of originator or founder of Bitcoin that wrote the original white paper. I was like, wouldn't that be the biggest 
bonkers move of the, of the day if actually he were the original there, founder. I don't believe suggest, that. <laughs> I wouldn't put anything out of the realm of possibility in 2021. Yeah. Elon Musk does it again. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, to Japan now. Protesters taking to the streets of Tokyo, voicing opposition to the Summer Olympics. COVID-19 cases continue to surge across the country with little more than two months to go until the Olympics. As Selena Wang reports from Tokyo. I'm walking along an anti-Olympics protest that's underway right now here in Japan. They are chanting for the games to be cancelled, holding signs saying that these games cannot go on, asking for the Olympic torch flame to be extinguished. I've spoken to many of the protesters here today, and they're frustrated by the government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. They don't feel these games can possibly be held safely and securely. Several of them have lost their jobs amid the pandemic. They say that important resources need to be put towards saving people lives and for dealing with more important causes like rebuilding the region devastated by the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. One of the protesters here today even told me that it would be inhumane to host the Olympics this summer. Now, the protesters here today, the way they feel, reflects the mounting public frustration here on the ground in Japan. According to local polls, the majority of people in this country think the Games should not be held this summer. In fact, an online petition calling for the Games to be cancelled in just nine days received more than 350,000 signatures. Even a doctor's union in Japan said these Games have to be cancelled, warning they could turn into a super spreader event, even without any spectators in the stands. Now, despite all of this mounting public opposition, the anger and frustration that I'm really hearing from people today, the Japanese government and the International Olympic Committee, the real decision makers here, insist that these games will go on as planned, safely and securely. But that doesn't reflect the reality here on the ground. When you have COVID-19 cases surging in Japan, just about 1% of the population fully vaccinated, not to mention large swaths of this country are currently under a state of emergency. With just 10 weeks to go, day by day, the frustration, the opposition in Japan only grows. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo. Okay, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but still to come, sun-seeking Brits flock to Portugal as the two countries reopen their borders. We'll hear from the country's tourism minister on preparing for an unusual summer. And Bill Gates under scrutiny as Microsoft says it's investigated his involvement with an employee. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. British holidaymakers flocking to airports this morning as England, Scotland and Wales lift bans on foreign travel. Tourists can now visit 12 green list countries without having to quarantine when they return. But the UK's travel industry wants more. Anna Stewart joins us now from Gatwick Airport outside London. Anna, we haven't lost you on a flight somewhere warmer. Talk us through how busy it is there. Thank you for hanging around. (laughs) Oh, Julia. I was inches from a plane, but no, I did not get on it. Now, up to this point, it was actually illegal to go on holiday. But today, as you said, England, Wales and Scotland, people can jet off for a vacation. But the list of countries on the green list, which are the ones where you don't need to quarantine on your return, is pretty limited. And not all those countries on that list are actually accepting international tourists. Testing still involved, and that is expensive. One passenger told me that testing was actually cost him three times more than the flight itself. All that said, this is welcome news for the industry. Here's the CEO of EasyJet. I'm uh, super excited 
you know, it's a, it's a big day today because the travel ban has actually been lifted today. So from today, you're allowed to travel, which is a big step. Now, of course, we would like to have seen that the, the green list would have consisted of, of more destinations and countries. And we believe with the latest data that is available, that that green list can and should be expanded, as we're now seeing is happening across Europe as well. So we're looking forward to that to happen, so we can you know, restart uh, travel in, in, in a safe way, also at a larger scale. We have been here before. I mean, we have had this conversation before. Last summer, frankly, was a bit chaotic. The UK government imposing lifting restrictions every week on different destinations. Are we going to see the same thing again this summer? But you see what's different this time? It's the success of the vaccination program. And, and, and here in the UK, obviously, but also now, that is being rolled out quite efficiently and swiftly now across the, the rest of the Europe. So that is the big difference and, and the effectiveness of the vaccines that is out there and also the fact that the manufacturers now are looking at the way how they're going to treat you know, the vaccines going forward in terms of dealing with also variants to come makes us in it being in a very, very different place that we have been in before. Some optimism there from the COVZ jet. We're going to get their half year results later this week. I don't think it's going to be pretty, Julia. This airline was really only running less than 20% capacity of 2019 last quarter. They have cut thousands of jobs. They have sold and leased back aircraft. Their cash burn has slowed. They're in a better sort of position financially than some. But travel's not going back to normal anytime soon. And I doubt they'll be returning to profit anytime soon either. Julia? Yes, it's a great day but it's the beginning of a long road. I think that's the message. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. Now, Portugal is one of the 12 countries on Britain's green list for travel. Its borders have been closed since January 30th. Today, they reopened to visitors from most of Europe and the UK, provided they have a negative COVID-19 test. Tourism made up 20% of the country's economy in 2018, according to the World Travel and Tourism Council. And joining us now is Zurita Marquez. She's Portugal's Secretary of State for Tourism. Minister Marquez, fantastic to have you on the show. And it looks beautiful behind you, I have to say. Just explain how this travel is going to work and what tourists can expect from Portugal. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, this is an important day. In fact, we are uh, resuming tourism here in Portugal. And the experience, I hope that the end of the day would be, I, I guess that it would be, it will be great. So that's our main objective. Of course, you have to be tested in order to get into the country. And, um, and you have to comply with all the rules, use the mask, uh, social distance, everything that we already know, because we do have a great experience about the epidemiological situation, I guess. Uh, but at the end of the day, as I was telling you, we want the tourists to have a, a great, great experience here in the country. What is it going to be like for tourists? Because you mentioned mask wearing, you mentioned social distancing. So if a tourist wants to go into a restaurant, walk on the street, are they still going to have to wear masks? And where might those rules be relaxed? Well, um, you know, we are completely open. That means that all restaurants, coffee shops and, and even casinos, they, they are completely open. Of course, we do have some restrictions, um, but uh, those restrictions, I think they are common everywhere. So you have to wear a mask um, when you are, for instance, in a restaurant near a beach. 
uh, if you are near the, the sea, you don't need to wear a mask. But if you are in a in a public um, public um, uh, in a in a street or avenue, you should wear a, a mask outside. The rules are pretty simple. You can visit our website, visit Portugal, have everything there, and also um, whole hotels, all restaurants are able to inform you about what's going on and um, what should you you should do in a, a specific situation. And I mentioned um, tourists will have to have a COVID test before they arrive in Portugal. Do they have to have a test once they're in Portugal too, or is it purely before entry and then once they arrive, they're fine? No, they, they will be fine. So basically when you uh, check in, when you are boarding, in fact, when, the, when you do the, the boarding uh, procedure, you have to present a PCR test a negative test with 72 hours prior the, the traveling. And then uh, when you go back to the UK, you have to comply with the British government rules. That means that you have to do a test again. But uh, that depends on the, the British uh, side, the, the British government side. Of course. But testing capabilities are relatively easy to find in Portugal in order to return home safely. Not only the availability, so it's it's uh, you you have plenty of offer, so no problem with that. But also the prices are very much competitive when compared, for instance, with uh, the British ones. So um, of course, my suggestion to all of you that are traveling to Portugal is to contact your hotel, contact uh, you know our your tour operator, and try to schedule the test in advance in order to avoid queues at the airport. We don't want that. We want to provide a great experience. But of course, you have to plan everything. So um, you have to plan and schedule the tests when you are gone, when you are about to to leave the country. Yes, don't leave anything to chance. Um, How concerned are you by the variant that was first identified in India? I know there's certain ripples of concern around Europe as we see cases pop up. And in that vein, how quickly could you change the rules if you start to see cases rise? Are you maintaining sort of flexibility on that? And how quickly could those rules change? How much warning will holidaymakers be given? I guess that's what I'm asking. Um, we, we revise the rules after every 15 days, every two weeks. That doesn't mean that we have to change immediately. So, um, uh, but of course, we, we are um, being updated about this new strain, this new variant. We have been in contact also with the British government. Um, even today, I was talking to our ambassador, your ambassador, the British ambassador here in Lisbon. So, we are we are um, attentive, uh, taking care of the situation, and I hope. Uh, that um, everything stays under control, and um, and if that's not the case, we'll immediately react. That's that's our main priorities to have everything's, you know, um, to, everyone has to be safe, no matter where you are, either in Portugal, either in the UK. So we need to react uh, immediately if that's the case. That certainly makes, um, and it certainly is the hope. I was just looking at your numbers, your tourism numbers for 2019, and it was international tourists from places like America, more than 20% jump, 16% plus jump from those from China, 15% from Brazil. It was a real international feel for, for who was visiting. What hopes for relaxing the boundaries for countries like that, or is it slow but steady to begin? You know, we are uh, giving baby steps, so baby steps, once at a time. Um, we open up this uh, this Monday uh, for Schengen countries uh, plus the UK, 
and uh, we have been um, analyzing the epidemiological situation in other countries, including US and the ones that you mentioned. They are very important to us, of course, uh, but we, we need to, to be careful. Uh, we need to prevent, um, you know, we need to be um, uh, completely um, try to avoid risk. That's, that's our main priority. And in that sense, I guess that in a couple of weeks, we'll revise again the situation about the US and other geographies. Um, and uh, again, evaluating a little bit what happened, what's happening again with the UK. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a baby step process for sure. Baby steps and safety first. We get it. Minister Marques, exactly. fantastic to have you exactly. on the show. Portugal's Secretary of State for Tourism there. Great to have you okay. with us. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the first trading day of the week, a merger Monday in the media industry, but a muted Monday, I think, for investors overall. That's the picture. Wall Street coming off a losing week with tech hit the hardest, down over 2%. The Nasdaq now some 5% down from recent record highs. Tech falling on concern over how sustained inflation might ultimately affect bond yields, stock valuations included newly released numbers show u.s consumer inflation expectations at its highest levels in more than 12 years those things clearly directly tied in the meantime shares of both at&t and discovery are higher on news of their multi-billion dollar content deal as we've been reporting at&t is spinning off its massive media conglomerate warden media and merging it with discovery to better compete in the increasingly competitive streaming space, to better take on the likes of Disney Plus and Netflix, among others. Warner Media, of course, is the parent company of CNN. And as you can see, they're both stocks higher in the session. The company's announcing that Discovery CEO David Zaslav will head up the combined company. Okay, let's bring it back to our top story today. Fighting between the Israel and Palestinian militants is now in its second week. Israel's Air Force says it carried out early morning air strikes on Gaza, targeting homes of Hamas commanders. Hamas says it's responded by firing dozens of rockets into Israeli cities. Let's get more now from CNN's Nick Robertson. He joins us near the Israel-Gaza border. Nick, great to have you with us. There were hopes over the weekend. I mentioned it earlier on the show that perhaps we could come to some agreement over a ceasefire. Certainly not the case once again this morning. Yeah, it really doesn't seem to be so. There was that hope over the weekend. The Egyptians were sort of leading an effort to to get Hamas to stop their rocket fire. Uh, the United States and the Qataris involved with uh, the Israelis as well to try to sort of get everyone to, to 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 stop and have a pause to at least try to get to a position of of agreement on over how to end all of this. That's not happening. I'm I'm right now in an uh, uh, Israeli Defense Force artillery position. This position is now active. The troops have been loading up their artillery pieces with. Uh, additional uh, additional ordnance. Uh, everything you see from this location indicates that there, this is far from done. What we've heard from the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is he says that he hopes that this is all over soon, but that but it but that isn't the case. Uh, that it still has some ways to go, uh, undefined how far to go. Um, overnight, Israeli uh, air force targeting Hamas tunnel networks. They say uh, 54 aircraft in the air at the same time, uh, and in a space of 
20 minutes, destroying about 15 kilometers of Hamas's tunnel network that they say is vital to Hamas to move fighters around the battlefield uh, without being detected. So that's one of the targets. Uh, Islamic Jihad commander also targeted and killed, believed today as well. Uh, so uh, Israeli Air Force still has targets that it, that it wants to achieve inside Gaza. And the uh, artillery here, the, the ground forces, also have been given targets uh, to go after. Um, when the artillery was firing intensely a couple of days ago, that also was targeting the tunnel network. So I think that would be the expectation now. So when you see that and you see that Hamas is continuing to fire its rockets, um, one of their rockets hitting a residential building in uh, in Ashdod today, yesterday one of their rockets hitting a synagogue in, in Ashkelon, just up the coast from here. Um, the, the, the kinetic uh, momentum of this conflict still continues despite that effort at diplomacy. And just a quick note on that effort at diplomacy. Hamas are saying, this is according to them, and we don't have an Israeli version of, of how these talks are going, but Hamas is saying there are two stumbling blocks uh, in the talks to, get, to bring about a, cease, uh, a cessation of, of firing. And what are those stumbling blocks, Nick? And can you also just explain behind us, behind you, what's going on? Because we can see activity behind you. Can you just uh, explain what you're seeing there? Sure. So at this location, there are a number of what the military call mobile artillery pieces. These are like howitzers, but on, on tanks. And that was one of them firing out just there. So they're firing their artillery rounds um, into Gaza. If you just wait a few seconds here, probably we'll, we'll be able to hear that one impact. So you get a sense of, you know, the range that they're firing over. Uh, and I can say that there are a number of these artillery pieces at this location, scattered around this location here. And the ones that I've seen, the majority of the ones that I've seen, have been taken as we arrived, fresh deliveries of artillery shells. And when you see that at an artillery uh, station, you know that the troops are getting those artillery pieces to fire. They're kept, they're held back in storage until they're needed for use. So the impression that created now is that these, these pieces are being moved forward for use. And that bang you heard behind me was uh, the artillery being fired. So that's what's happening here. Those two stumbling blocks that Hamas spoke about. Again, we only have their version of events. They say that uh, they have put a condition on a stop and a ceasefire, but it's not called a ceasefire, a sort of pause in hostilities, that Israel would no longer uh, put pressure on the on the people, the Palestinians in Sheikh, Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in, uh, in Jerusalem to leave their houses. That's been a point of contention. And that Israeli uh, police would not go into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which again was was a uh, for Palestinians was was an intense uh, moment that really built built towards the violence that we're seeing now um, uh, there is another condition as well that, that Hamas says that it won't buy into Hamas says the Israeli authorities won't buy into their condition uh, but Hamas is condition that it won't buy into is that it, it is supposed to go on to a ceasefire for th three hours ahead of the Israeli forces doing that, and they say they won't accept that. Again, caveat, we have not heard from Israeli officials their view of these conversations that Hamas say are taking place. Yeah, such an important point. We await the uh, Israeli response on this too. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for explaining what's happening there. Nick Robertson there. All right, coming up on First Move, a world-renowned chef jumping in to help India with tens of millions of meals as his home country is devastated by the pandemic that story and more of the work that he's doing next.
Welcome back to First Move into India now, where a powerful tropical cyclone is hitting with strong winds and heavy rain, hampering efforts to contain the coronavirus pandemic. India reported around 280,000 new COVID-19 infections today. It's actually the first day in nearly four weeks that we've seen fewer than 300,000 cases. Now, as the pandemic continues to claim more lives, world-renowned chef Vikas Khanna is stepping in to help his country. He's provided 65 million meals across India. He's also teamed up with an NGO in California, raising more than $1.5 million to help provide supplies like oxygen. And he joins us now. Vikas, fantastic to have you on the show. I know you and your team have been doing some incredible work over the past year, if not more. But at first, I just want to get your take with what we're seeing in India at this moment. I know you have family there too. Mom is back in Amritsar. That's a lot. My brother is there too. Most of my family is in India. And it's an incredibly difficult time, I know. Just talk about what you've been doing to try and help. So we started this initiative last year, which is called Feed India, in which we supply either cooked or dry ration food to many communities around more than 100 cities. And we took part and we did partnership with NDRF, that is National Disaster Response Force of India. That's a government body. And they were the ones who were distributing and doing all the logistics on ground. And then everything was based on partnerships. Everything was based on partnership. And now seeing what happened in the second wave was extremely heartbreaking. And we partnered with Vibha and uh, Mr. Kayushya is one who's coordinating this entire operation with us. And we started this um, fundraising campaign just a few weeks ago and we raised $1.5 million. This is for oxygen concentrators, for PPE kits, for some hospital kits. Uh, in the, and we also started this. We also want to start with vaccination centers. And it, it looks, it, it's also very emotional for all of us to see your motherland in this state right now. It's a total it's a total breakdown of like the whole system right now. I mean, part of that breakdown in the system challenges even your efforts to help in getting the supplies to people. And I know this is something that you're incredibly sensitive about, just making sure that the provisions and the supplies that you're trying to provide actually get to where they're going. How are you managing that? How are you ensuring that? So one thing which I've always been very, because, you know, this was a, uh, we have partnerships, we have people contributing, so we totally answerable to every single cent. And this is why I've, I've become extremely uh, sensitive to all these issues that we have to be extremely transparent how we track everything down. So I tracked down even a single concentrator. Me and Kayura up all single night when the deliveries arrived. And you can see this major trucks arriving in big cities. We Now everything gets divided to which hospital or which nursing home gets what. I think that's very important in fundraising, especially when a country is in dire need, that the accountability is it's of the highest need right now, that people should be able to see that how I become so focused in this to get it to the right people who need the help. Of course, there are many challenges. Sometimes we get calls of people saying that, you know, on high position, position of power saying that, you know what, it's you're sitting in New York, we will take care of everything and just give it to us. I did that mistake in Feed India a few times because, and then I couldn't find where my food was, which was very difficult for me later. 
and here no we said we give it in the hands of the doctors or the people in the nursing homes who need this equipment so it's it's difficult to trust people in power you literally have to make sure you track everything and and do it yourself trust i think is critical at this moment trust and hope it's right thing i do trust a lot of people in power but sometimes you know but you know in cooking you to check a whole bowl like a pot of rice you pick up one <laughs> grain of rice but that does not stay your type you know but sometimes you are you are in this position where you have to trust because we are sitting so thousands of miles away and um, my mom told me she saying you know no one is safe until everyone is safe and that is why we say that you know we need to vaccinate right after this we're going to get into this mode of vaccinations where uh, vipa will be coordinating this entire campaign with us and we'll be monitoring it very closely because you know uh, it's like almost running a michelin star kitchen that your operations your line of work has to be so straight that there are few discrepancies but you know when you're so far what you said trust and faith sometimes both are shaken but yeah. it does not break it just makes you stronger and you figure out what not to do or what to do next time you also partnered i believe with texas instruments to set up a hospital and and you mentioned it and for those that people that don't recognize you and i'm sure most of my my viewers will you're also the host of master chef india and you have a cooking show of your own and actually you're using that show as well to talk to people about vaccines and try and give them information as well that can help and educate them this is a vital part of this story too some people tell me i've used my position way too much i'm like i don't <laughs> cooking is something which brings everyone together so you get everyone's attention it's like getting people to your restaurant and it's also interesting that starting from last week anyone who watches my movie on amazon all the proceeds will go to this mission so for me everything is creative partnerships in which we give value to people like you know what we are doing with uh, texas instrumental is that we're going to be setting makeshift hospital in bangalore for 100 beds and that is an amazing vision if we can do that model well because it's almost like a template or if we can do that well it means that we can replicate that model yeah every bed every life saved is an incredible achievement vikas i want to end talking about some good news the reopening of a restaurant in dubai very exciting you've been counting down on social media as well i know this is a big moment talk us through this too because it's It's exciting and it's been a long road. You know, I was supposed to open a restaurant in New York <clears throat> last year. Sorry, you know, restaurants are like my absolutely stages of representing India. And when a restaurant goes down, you know, it breaks your heart. It absolutely I feel like, you know, I let down so many people. And so many people who trusted me, there's an entire chain of people who actually are responsible for running a restaurant successfully. from getting michelin stars to everything but when the restaurants were affected by this pandemic it totally crushed most of the people in my industry but now we see that the restaurants are coming back and the restaurant is almost full a few weeks the reservation is full up and like the countdown means a lot to me so people are saying as it it's like a baby is getting a rebirth and i feel that it's like me as an immigrant coming to america we were reborn in so many ways in so many different stages of metamorphosis in this country and i feel my my little restaurant kinara is going to go through metamorphosis and it's good news because it creates jobs it creates 
whole line of produce, everybody starts getting paid and it's also value for customers. I don't think your smile could get wider. We wish you all the luck with that and thank you for everything that you're doing for India as well. Our hearts to them. Vikas Khanna, great to have you with us, sir. Thank you. Okay, let's move on. Taiwan has been widely praised for how it handled the coronavirus pandemic. But today, the island's biggest outbreak is forcing it to impose new restrictions and adding to concerns. Taiwan has one of the lowest vaccination rates in the world, as Will Ripley reports. Here in Taiwan, a troubling situation is getting even worse. Another day of record high daily infection rates, the highest that this island has seen during the entire pandemic. The Taiwan Centers for Disease Control is blaming this outbreak on adult entertainment venues, many of the cases happening at hostess tea houses. But not only are those businesses closed, but gyms and any sort of uh, public gatherings of larger than 10 people, private gatherings now restricted to five people or less. People are also required to wear masks out in public. And this is coming after just a few days ago, the streets were full of people, many of them without masks, enjoying a relatively normal quality of life. Taiwan was one of the first in the world to shut down its borders at the onset of the pandemic. And as a result, they all but eliminated local transmission. People lived for months without the fear of catching COVID-19. But that complacency has allowed this virus to spread and spread quickly as people were not following social distancing recommendations. And now they are. The streets of Taipei, which were empty uh, uh, over the weekend, continue to be very quiet on Monday. People hoping that by observing these guidelines, they can get those case numbers down before this cluster of cases becomes an even bigger outbreak. Taiwan and its more than 23 million people are highly susceptible to COVID-19 because of the fact that there are very few people who've been vaccinated. There's a vaccine shortage and almost no herd immunity here. Will Ripley, CNN, Taiwan. And they certainly handled it incredibly well in the beginning. Okay, up next, Microsoft says it's investigated founder Bill Gates. We've got the details next. Welcome back to First Move. Microsoft says it's investigated founder Bill Gates over his involvement with an employee. This follows reports that Gates' 2020 resignation from the board was triggered by those concerns. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, what more do we know? Yeah, Julian, new revelations coming out in the weeks following this out-of-the-blue divorce. First from the Wall Street Journal reporting that the reason they say, according to sources familiar with the matter, CNN hasn't independently confirmed this, they say the reason he stepped down from the board in March of 2020 was because the board was investigating a romantic relationship he had had back in 2000, so, so the best part of 20 years ago, with a Microsoft employee. Now, there is a statement from Microsoft to CNN. They say uh, they're confirming that investigation, but they're denying that it was in any way, or at least not mentioning that it was in any way linked to his re- resignation from the board. That statement saying Microsoft received a concern in the latter half of 2019 that Bill Gates sought to initiate an intimate relationship with a company employee in the year 2000. They say a committee of the board reviewed the concern, aided by an outside law firm to conduct a thorough investigation. They also say throughout the investigation, Microsoft provided extensive support to the employee who raised the concern. Now, in that article by the Wall Street Journal, a, a spokesperson for Gates denying 
there was any link between that investigation and his resignation from the board, saying Bill's decision to transition off the board was in no way related to this matter. But another report, Julia, this is not just one uh, set of reporting here from the New York Times, talks of a broader sort of uh, sort of culture around him, a broader reputation for what they call questionable conduct, saying uh, that that was, you know, in some circles, he was seen to be uh, sort of broadly engaging in questionable conduct in workplace environments. They have spoken to, to several women whose names they don't release, who say that he made advances which were then refused. So take all of this Add in the, the allegations that surfaced last week uh, from the Wall Street Journal again that, that his contacts with Jeffrey Epstein, the convicted sex offender, uh, were one of the reasons why Melinda Gates eventually filed for divorce. And you see sort of the story of this couple cast in a different light. He is one of the, the, the visionaries behind U.S. big tech running this huge public company uh, and the two of them uh, as, as the, the founders uh, and philanthropists behind this huge $50 billion uh, organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So serious uh, sort of issues arising here. I will say no criminal conduct has been uh, alleged uh, and and the couple are still saying that they are working together on the foundation, Julia. Yeah, so much scrutiny, but such a huge divorce and such a powerful couple. Plaza Bastian, thank you so much for that. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. I'll see you tomorrow and connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.